Hey, I am here with Sarah Lyons, who is a Leo. Yes. And your last name is Lyons, which I am extremely envious of. That is so perfect. I really love it. I really lo- it's it's one of those things like I don't like I don't think I would ever if I ever do get married, I don't think I would ever change my name even even if I wanted to, I don't think I could. Like it's No, just you can't. Too no, it's it's made for you. Yeah. Um, and you are a writer, an activist, a witch, which is an incredible trifecta of things. So you're doing the fucking Leo. You're leaning into Leo really well right now. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> no, I, um, I actually, I, this is such a cliche, like Leo thing to say, but I actually really, I really love being a Leo and I love, I have a Leo stellium. I have my Venus, Mercury and sun are oh, in cool. Leo and my favorite, I don't know. Do you have a favorite part of your chart? Like, do you have a favorite placement? Well, you know, interestingly, over time, the things that I love most about my chart are the things that are some of the hardest things to work through. Mm. I love my eighth house stellium. I love my moon in Pisces. Um, but yeah, it took me a while to actually work up the ability to understand how to utilize them. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I I love my Leo Venus placement, but it's squared my uh my pluto scorpio placement and that that's one of those things that like i actually am so grateful for astrology for because it's like oh at least i know this now like at least i have like this knowledge of myself now that i can work on these problems instead of going through life and being like why does this always happen to me yeah i mean it's the so pluto and scorpio is a generational uh, placement, right? Mm-hmm. People within who are born between the early 80s and the early 90s all have this. It's like a 10-year period. And if you were born with Venus in um, Aquarius or Venus in Leo, you're going to have a square, a Venus square oh, to Pluto. Okay. Um, depending on where it is in your chart, what other planets are involved, you know, it's obviously going to be different for everybody when they're working with this what i find to be very interesting about it is the fact that we um a venus in leo really like has a lot of ego and love which i think is amazing like i don't say ego in a bad way i'm also a venus in libra so i'm a vain motherfucker so we get each other (laughs) yeah there's a leos and libras get along we feel like we understand each other on a level yeah totally um so with my with my Venus in Libra, I can say, you know, we can talk about sort of the more indulgent properties of Venus. When Venus is in Leo, it is over the top, needs to be seen, to be appreciated, to be loved. The interesting thing about a square to Pluto is that, you know, there's always going to be destruction with Pluto and death and regeneration and transformation. And Leo hates doing those things. Yeah. Leo is like, just like, no, I do not want to <laughs> lose my throne. I don't want to lose my title. Like, I don't want anything that comes with the freaky deaky Plutonian energy. Mm. So people who have this natal square um, often find themselves sort of in a between a rock and a hard place <laughs> of like being on I kind of the imagery that's coming to mind is being on like a marathon float that's deflating mm. um always this is <laughs> such a positive way to start out a conversation <laughs> it's like well you're gonna be sad forever so just get used to that well I mean you, I guess it's also a matter of like if you know you're on this marathon marathon float that is like designed to start inflating then like put some safety features on it yes you know like add wheels bring a parachute Mm. um pack sneakers yeah i i think um it's also for me been a meditation on like how we um how we craft boundaries and expectations around relationships that we have that like i think a lot of people you know long for something and then they try to find they get an idea in their head of what they want and then they go out and they think that like, okay, I'm going to find the thing that I want and if I can't find it, I'm going to make it happen. And it's like kind of letting the the things that change in your life actually change what you th- thought you wanted all along and being okay with those changes I think has been a thing for me over the past like few months of, of being, you know, oh, I wanted this to happen a year or two ago, but... I, it didn't come to me then and I was sad about it then but it's because I wasn't ready for that at that mm-hmm. time you know and 
being okay with, you know, our evolutions, our personal evolutions, like taking time and like priming us to be ready for when we actually are ready for the things that we need in our lives. I've come around to the idea that, you know, sometimes we don't get the things that we want when we want them because we weren't ready to like receive that, that gift at that time. And we had to go through those learning moments of like, well, if you had found your soulmate when you were like in high school, you wouldn't have been ready for that person because you wouldn't have been mature enough to understand like how to keep that person in your life. Right. So it's like, it's a good thing that like we are able to, you know, make mistakes and hopefully learn and grow from them because it primes us to actually be ready for when the good things do arrive in our lives and like preps us to get everything in order for that you know um if we learn but that's always that's the hard part yeah I mean and I always remind my clients that it takes 30 years for the birth chart to come into full maturation Mm. so you know let's say you have children or get married or find yourself in some sort of a very committed situation before your chart comes into uh, full bloom, you need to be open to change. Mm. You know, you need to allow flexibility within your partnership, within your parenting styles, within your career path, because the chart is going to, is still growing. And even when it hits 31, it basically like resets and goes back to the beginning and has a new opportunity to um, experience the, the, you know, like the actually to take the trauma and the bad shit that has happened and to repurpose it. Mm. So we always have to be very cognizant of the fact that nothing is ever set and locked in. Yeah. And that's, um, I feel like an interesting segue into talking about your book because... I was going to say, you're leaning right into this. Yeah. Like the whole world is changing right now. Yeah. So you are writing a book and it is from from this date where we are talking right now, it's due in about three weeks. Yeah. I, it's due um, the beginning of March. Um, it's called Revolutionary Witchcraft, A Guide to Magical Activism. That's such a good title. Thank you. Um, I'm so ha- I'm so proud of my, my baby. I, I am like treating it like it's like an infant. I'm like... Like no, I have to go home and work with my my baby now. But I, uh, yeah, I'm I'm so excited for it. It's uh, due out from Running Press, um, and I believe November of 2019. But uh, that's still kind of in flux right now. But um, yeah, it's a it's a guide. It's sort of a 101 book for um, if you're really into witchcraft or really into magic, and you want to get more involved in activism, but you don't really know how to do that. It's like a good 101 book for you. But also if you're into activism, if you're into politics and things like that, and you want to maybe add a more magical lens to it, it's also a good one-on-one book for you. So it's not going to get, you know, if you're looking for a deep book on like political theory, this ain't it. But I almost kind of want, one of my things I'm, I'm constantly thinking of while writing this book is like, I hope I write this book so that people write better books after it. You know, like I hope I... I hope I write it and people read it and are inspired to kind of take it and do their own thing with it after that, you know? Um, but yeah, I think it's interesting. We're talking about change right now because one of the things I, I talk about in the first chapter is how I think we're really living in like a supremely magical time um, in a very weird time. And the two, you know, usually go hand in hand together. Right. Um, I don't know if you experienced this, but something very weird that I saw happen after the 2016 election and after Donald Trump was elected, I found it a lot easier to talk to people about magic than it was before. Like before 2016, I, if I, I almost never talked to people about being a witch. I really, it was something I hid. It wasn't something I was like out and proud about. And it, and if I talked about it, I always found I had to ground it in like history and pragmatism. And I had to like give all of these like, you know, rational reasons for why I do this and or and or downplay it and make it silly or something like that. And I feel like after 2016 happened, it became a lot easier for me, at least to kind of when I would say like, oh, yeah, I practice magic. Like, OK, what do you mean? Like, well, reality is kind of based on a lot of our perceptions and it's a thing that can be fucked with and is malleable in a lot of ways. And I think people were way more willing to accept that framework after, you know, the biggest this big liar got into office and basically just pretended his way into being president, you know? Yeah, I I actually had the exact same experience with astrology as well. I um, co-founded an astrology dating app in 2013 
and there was a three-year period where I was actively uh, talking about astrology, which is how I met our mutual teacher, Annabelle Gatt, mm-hmm. um, and was going to investors, trying to ma- raise money for this, and the rhetoric surrounding it was like, oh, that? Like, what are you talking about? Like, <laughs> good luck in Santa Fe. Like, that was just not at all part of, you know, the collective consciousness at that moment i mean it was starting to build and there was interest but the main shift that occurred was a hundred percent after the 2016 election um i think a large part of it from you know my observation was the fact that there was so much of the skepticism surrounding astrology and magic and witchcraft is about pragmatism Mm -hmm. and science and is this something that can be proven um during the election there were experts who were using quantitative measurements to track the fact that hillary was going to win Mm -hmm. all of us were watching that horrifying new york times meter go (laughs) from like 99 percent hillary win all the way to the left side or whatever the you know arrangement of it was and, and watching the alcohol on our shelves like sl- rapidly decrease. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was it was a fucking horrible night. Um, but I think that to the collective, to the greater public, we saw at that moment that everything is bullshit. Mm-hmm. Everything yeah. is like you're, the things that we had put on such a high pedestal of being accurate and responsible information became just crashed down mm-hmm. super quickly, which allowed the conversation for these more abstract, less tangible things um, to come forward. Yeah. And I I completely agree with you. I think this is an extremely magical time. Um, we also have so many of the planets doing extremely magical things. Ooh, I want to know more about that because that's always the thing that, that fascinates me is, is, you know, I really do feel like you can you can – I admire astrologers so much because I get so scared if I dive too deep down the rabbit hole of astrology because it's like, oh, my God, is everything really predicated by the stars? And, like, I, I guess maybe it is. And, like, I and there's a – I know that I've been seeing a lot of rumblings about uh, a lot of planets going retrograde in Capricorn in March, right? And just that not looking like a great thing. I don't know. There's there's a lot I've, – I've just been hearing a lot of reports from people about what's coming up, so I'm interested in hearing what – There are some – real bangers coming up so first of all in 2020 we're going to have a very heavy hitting capricorn stellium when we start off the year um we are going to have jupiter saturn and pluto all in capricorn and that is also going to be coinciding with the eclipses which are going to be in cancer and capricorn so when we have jupiter and saturn aligning in the same sign it is called the great conjunction and this happens almost every this happens every 20 years and they some interesting theoretical astrologers have actually tracked that this aspect has occurred every year that there has been the death of the current president or an assassination attempt at the president. Ooh. So that's really interesting. You heard it here first, folks. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, I feel like that is like really just ripe for being flagged. Yeah, <laughs> what I just yeah. said, but. Hello, FBI. <laughs> I was actually hey. questioned by the FBI a few months ago, so we can talk about that. Oh yeah, this, yeah, this is going to be an interesting, this might, yeah. this episode really might do some some work on it for us oh yeah we're gonna we're gonna get a knock on the door in like five minutes (laughs) that's so real i'm gonna put some tape on the camera right now oh yeah absolutely (laughs) um so that's gonna be happening in addition we're also going to have because we have all of these uh, planets in capricorn we're going to have saturn who's in its last year in capricorn finally making a conjunction to pluto in midpoint astrology that's called the hell point so yeah. <laughs> all of these sound like great like 70s like metal albums like the grand conjunction the the help oh dude i'm ready for it i'm so ready for the 70s rock album we have coming up oh yeah. shit holy moly that's so good so yeah so the hell point is going to get activated um which is 
you know, it Saturn is about the patriarchy and the establishment and systems and Pluto is about destruction and transformation and just like burning the whole thing down. Hmm. So that's really interesting. Then in 2024, Pluto is going to be making what is called a Pluto return. And this has never happened to the United States before because it takes Pluto 284 years to complete one orbit. Mm -hmm. So Pluto in the sky is going to be going back to its exact position as it was when the Declaration of Independence was signed for the first time ever. So, yes, I've been reading about this, and I feel like it's that's the thing that has me kind of nervous about everything. That's I I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, this is... um, Definitely not the, this conversation is so, like, at the forefront of everybody's minds right now. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, one of the things that I've been contemplating is, should this 2016 election not have happened, Pluto was still going to be heading towards a Pluto return. Mm. Let's say there was some sort of, like, a more positive, less dictator Mm-hmm. person in office um and we were still heading towards a pluto return that would be really uncomfortable because we wouldn't have been exposed to all of the nightmares that have actually just existed this whole time and have been brewing under the surface but with trump winning and the state of where things are in society right now like yeah, we could really fucking use a Pluto return. Yeah, I think you're I think you're right. I think um it's kind of going back to what we were sort of talking about earlier um in terms of like you know sometimes bad things happen to you and in the moment you're like this is the end of the world. I fucking hate this. You know, why does this have to happen to me? And then you don't realize until a few years later like, "Oh, I got I got taught a lesson then, so I didn't have to learn a worse lesson now." Right. Right. So it's like and you weren't ready for that lesson at the time. So now you're now you're learning it. So you get it later on. Right. And I think I I really do think like the only way that I can metabolize what is happening when I look at Trump and when I look at the 2016 election and kind of like the paradigm shift that sort of occurred that night is I think, you know, Trump isn't just a person and he's not just like a figurehead. He is the kind of amalgamation of all of these things. Like I, I'm going to misquote it here, but there's this book by Naomi Klein that I actually quote in my book um, called no is not enough. And in it, she says this line that's like, you know, Trump is the culmination of a great many lies that America has told itself that like, you know, white men are better than the rest, that the environment is there for us to plunder that like might makes right that all, you know, all of these things that we have told ourselves in American culture for decades now and have made a part of like every aspect of our lives. Like, Did we think that that wasn't ever going to metabolize into a person like this? And it feels so obvious looking back on it now that it was always leading to that point. But now that we're here, it's kind of like, okay, you know, you woke up drunk on your lawn with a bottle of wild turkey in your hand (laughs) and a lampshade on your head and and you don't know where your car keys are. Like, are you going to admit you have a problem now? Like, you know, it's like so real, you know, it's so fucking true. All right. You fucked up. Like, are you going to admit that you got some work to do? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) No, I I love that. And I can really visual. That's a nice visual for all of us, (laughs) I think. Yeah. I mean, we're at a point where it seems that, there's nothing else to do other than have a Pluto return. Yeah. You know? And yeah. we got to go to rehab. We got we we to go to rehab. We got to burn the shit down. Yeah. And I can't wait to read your book to find out exactly how I can incorporate more of my magical uh, yeah. procri- proclivities into this burning down process. Yeah. So I think, um, so what some of the things I try to do in the book is I give every chapter is sort of a different, um, you know, aspect of witchcraft or aspect of magic, um, magical activism, that kind of stuff. And I try to sort of show you how you can sort of blur the lines and blend the two together. Um, And that, you know, your activism is only going to be, how do I say this? Your magic is only ever going to get better if you tie it to like circumstances that are actually affecting the world right now. I think, I think the... 
the thing, especially as witches, if you're somebody out there listening who calls themselves a witch, I think the thing to understand is that the term witch is a political term. You know, that was crafted as a word by the state and by uh, law enforcement and by the church to legalize and then prosecute people who were practicing certain things and doing certain things in society. So, you know, we, the word witch is political the same way that the word like criminal is a political word, that the word felon is a political word. Obviously nowadays in like the West, it doesn't have that same connotation anymore because people don't really believe in witches anymore or don't believe that, you know, we're out here killing people's crops and doing all this stuff. But, you know, people, it's not criminalized the way that it used to be. So we've, we've lost a little bit of that. But I think it's important to remember that history and think, okay, like if that, if what I'm calling myself came about because of these certain circumstances, where am I seeing those same circumstances play out in the world today? You know, if you look at something like the word refugee or terrorist or alien or illegal alien, like these types of words that we're calling people right now, okay, that's not to say that witches are treated just as badly as those people. Obviously, a lot of the times, like, there's some, you know, I am I am able to sit here in this really nice apartment with this cute puppy. Thank you so much. <laughs> and and call myself a witch, and I don't have to worry about you know the feds knocking down the door. If I was somebody talking about my immigration status, I wouldn't be able to do that, right? And um, that's to build to recognize that is to build solidarity and say, okay, I see what once oppressed me, oppressing you now. I'm going to try to help to overcome that barrier, right? And see that a lot of the things that we are fighting right now have their origins in the kind of early accumulation that had to go on through the witch trials in order to create the sort of, you know, capitalist world that we live in now. And it's, I think that that's a really beautiful thing to recognize. And I think it only ever, you know, makes your magic stronger to have that history and that connection to the past and the present, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. Um, I also just the, the one of the things I you know I do a lot of activism here in New York City and it's just funny to me like you sit in meetings all day and it's like okay well we have to raise power around this issue and we have to like channel this this collective power to like do this task and it's like okay you guys are talking about magic right, right. now <laughs> and, <laughs> and then you talk to, to you know you go and you talk with witches and it's like well you know my witchcraft is about feminism and it's about female empowerment and stuff and it's like okay so like we're about activists yeah you know, it's like we're talking we're talking about politics right now and so it's it's i think um that's where i kind of want it to be a sort of road opener of a book and like kind of get the two sides talking a little bit and get get those ideas sort of flowing together if you will that's super cool um I do think that the the history of witchcraft from the political lens is really, really important to discuss and to make sure that, especially with it being very in vogue right now mm-hmm. and there being this aesthetic um, associated, especially on the internets, <laughs> with, you know, witchcraft and setting up beautiful crystal shots with incense and smoke and all of that is fab and great but this is also you know the the whole conversation surrounding witchcraft came from a ton of oppression Mm. and a ton of um othering Mm -hmm. right like witchcraft and the treatment of people who didn't obey the rules and who sort of did their own thing that is the whole reason that witches became problematic in society is that these are the people not only women but a lot of women um who were using their own tools and finding their own agency and power in order to take action and to give themselves um actually uh, the ability to make choices to say like i am not interested in marrying this person i also want to keep my money this person is also robbing from me or raping me or doing something horrific and i hate them (laughs) right they and nobody is listening to me Mm -hmm. because i'm a woman in 1500 Mm -hmm. and that sucks 
So being a witch ultimately was about um, reclaiming our power and our ability to stand up for ourselves. And of course, you know, I also find the process of scientific, the the scientific method and the um, enlightenment era to be something we're taught in school as like really when things started making sense and when everything was cool and good to go. Do things make sense to you right now? No. Weird. Weird. The, uh, The scientific revolution and the enlightenment era did so much amazing, amazing stuff. But it also justified racism it justified slavery it justified the um the treatment and the oppression of women by saying well men are truly stronger Mm -hmm. therefore it is absolutely okay so it is important to keep everything in mind that even to prove something using the scientific method required access to a lab required access to tools which became then a social class issue yeah i think i think it's important to remember too that like the criminalization of witchcraft and witches wasn't just about um, targeting individuals. It was targeting an entire worldview that couldn't exist anymore if the new world of, you know, the capitalist ruling class was going to come into play and to exist. Um, I, you know, I think before the enclosure movement in England, which was this thing that happened in the kind of early modern period where before the enclosure movement that kind of happened in England first, but it spread to other parts of Europe, um, you couldn't really own land. Like land was just a thing that we all existed on. And if you were like a lord or a king, you you had your like fiefdom, you had your, your kind of stuff and people could live on it if they, you know, gave you a certain amount of corn every year or they uh, agreed to fight in your army if they needed to. And in return, you got protection. It was this kind of like quid pro quo kind of thing. And but outside of like a king's fiefdom, you know, that land wasn't owned by anybody. So you could always just kind of go out to the wilds on your own. There was always this kind of place to just sort of drop out of society and go to. Um, There was a there was a place beyond society that wasn't commodified. And once we put a price tag on the land, we put a price tag on every single thing inhabiting that land. And we had to, you know, once you do that, once you make everything, um, once you change the economy so that the principle, the the primary reason that that economy exists is for profit, everything is then valued based on how it's able to create a profit. So women's work was immediately devalued because well that's not a, that's not creating me an immediate profit you know you taking care of these children you teaching people how to read you um you know sewing clothes in the house you cleaning this that's not commodifiable anymore so therefore what you do isn't valuable anymore once you commodify everything it reduces everything down to how efficient it is how you can uh you know, the the metaphors we start to use for our bodies change from the metaphor of a garden where everything's kind of different and one garden is different from the next, even if there's certain guiding principles there, to the metaphor of the machine where this is this cold factory that you exist in all the time and it is replaceable and it is mechanical and it is lifeless and we are going to like switch and change your parts like that and we are going to take you birthing a baby and make it a mechanical process that we can now control. There's there's so many things that change in that time period and magic can't fit into that worldview. You know, a belief in, um, you know, I'm not going to work today because Saturn doesn't want me to build this wall. Like there's an ill placement of Saturn going on right now and it would be really bad for us to build this building right now. You can't really have that when you need to have that building built for a price tag, right? You can't have um, certain times of the year you just don't work. Because it's cold out, you know? I don't want to go to work today. I can't go to work today because it's cold and I'm sick and I, and I can't do that. Too bad. You have to do that now. Um, and there's, um, you know, I don't, you know, we can't cut down that forest because there's a god that lives there. There's a spirit that lives there. This is sacred somehow. Well, no, we have to cut down that forest because it's worth a lot of money if we cut down that forest, you know? Um, and that violence got very much put into, like the visceral violence of of that commodification got felt the most by 
women in Europe and then indigenous populations in Africa and the Americas when, you know, all this colonialism started to come on over. Um, and I, I don't think it's a... Um, I think that the witch trials kind of got their uh, testing ground when you look at the way that we treated Native Americans here in America. Um, you can look in and see, like, you know, these people worship the devil. We need to burn them. We need to put them through these tests. We need to violently convert them. We need to control their women. And then it's kind of like, okay, now that we have a process for doing this, let's take this back on to Europe and let's, like, put it onto a population that we need to control here now. What do you think about... Um like Donald Trump and his his shitty people <laughs> using um the term witchcraft to describe or like a witch hunt using witch hunt to describe how they need to be impeached <laughs> <laughs> um hmm it's not out of all of the things that he says, it's it's actually not the thing that bothers me the most, honestly. Um, I mean, I think it's kind of hilarious that, like, you know, this is this administration that is, like, hell-bent on, like, stripping away Roe v. Wade and, and you know, further disempowering women and, and you know, taking away civil liberties and that kind of stuff. I mean, I think it's it's kind of darkly ironic that they love to use this term so much, but I try in the era of Trump to get less upset at what he says and more upset at what he does. Cause I think that I think the thing about Trump is that that's, that's scary about him to me. And this, that's scary about the, that administration to me is that, you know, through his kind of magic, he's able to sort of tweet out a thing at the beginning of the day, and then that's all we talk about for the rest of the day. You know, he he's able to say something that everyone can see, or most people can see, is, like, flatly ridiculous. Like, this is a witch hunt after me. And it's like, okay, well, that's fucking stupid. Like, you're not, you're not even close to being, you know, oppressed right now. You're not, the, 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 the comparison is is a ridiculous one just at face value, right? But we can spend all day talking about him using a term like that and then miss all of the things that he actually got done that day, like all the protections that were stripped away and all of the, um, you know, national parks that are being privatized right now. We can look at the tax bill that the Republicans got passed a year ago. You can look at, you know, all of these, you know, things that, I think that's kind of part of his power is to get us thinking about the words and like like a now not talking magic with the K but magic with the C like a magician on stage you know waves their hand around so you don't see what their other hand is doing. I think that that's kind of the sleight of hand that Trump is actually very savvy at. I don't think he's smart about a lot of things, but I think when it comes to how the media works and therefore like how our national consciousness works, I think he actually has a very savvy take on that. I really think after the election, it's kind of like what we were saying earlier. I I think the only people that were able to kind of digest and make any sense of what was going on were like my chaos magician friends, because <laughs> it's kind of the idea of like reality is what you make of it. You know, reality can be uh, changed and fucked with. And you if you project out a strong enough reality and just say, like, walk into a room and say, like, no, this is how it is you'd be amazed at how many people just roll over and accept that, mm -hmm. you know? And I think that that's kind of the power of Trump is that he just, you know, if you look back at The Apprentice Show, which unfortunately I watched in high school, I feel, <laughs> I'm never going to not feel guilty about that, but I fucking loved The Apprentice back in the day. <laughs> Real. It was it was great TV. He should have done nothing but that the rest of his life. He should have just stuck to media and, and it would have been great. Um, but yeah, he, um, you know, I don't know much about, I mean, we've all kind of stopped talking about his tax returns and stuff like that, but, like, I, there's a lot of arguments, I think, that are very compelling that he really doesn't have as much money as he says he does. Um, when he was, you know, just Donald Trump, the real estate mogul here in New York, uh, back in, like, the 80s and 90s, he used to do this thing where he would, you know, he'd go to all these parties and, you know, 
be gossipy and you know see who dating who oh so and so isn't with her husband tonight yeah he was like key socialite he was like a key socialite yeah he just that's what he always wanted to be is just like you know he just wanted to to, like schmooze he just wanted to schmooze with people he just wanted to be like the carrie bradshaw of like the douchebag world you know but he but he wanted to um but so he would when he, what he would do is like he would call up like the New York Post. Or Wait, lols at the Carrie Bradshaw of the douchebag. Of the douchebag world. I really really like that a lot. <laughs> but he couldn't help but think. <laughs> um, but yeah, so he would call up like the New York Post and be like, okay, I'll give you the the details of like what happened at this party last night. But you have to refer to me as a billionaire when you refer to Trump. You have to be like billionaire Donald Trump. And of course they said yes. They're like, okay, we want the information you have. So like, what what does it mean to us? But that was like him crafting a narrative and that was him crafting reality. So then there after that, people just assumed he was a billionaire because they saw it in a paper, you know, and the only reason it was there is because he told them that that was what reality was. It's probably not real, but that's but that's been his whole thing is like crafting the world around him based only on his lies. And like you can you can sit there and say, like, objective reality matters, but he became president through that strategy. I think um, something that's really instructive that I learned a few years ago that I, I heard it put in a really good way is that like facts do matter, but when you are, if you're somebody like a lawyer or if you're somebody who is telling a story to someone, the facts only matter so far as it has to create your narrative. You need to build a convincing story that people are going to want to believe with the facts that you have or else people aren't going to listen to what you have to say. And I think that that's what the Republicans have been incredibly good at and Democrats haven't been good at at all. Because, you know, you get a Democratic person up there and they're just like, well, statistically, we have to increase the GDP by this much using this tax revenue. And it's like, I'm dead, I'm snooze. But like, (laughs) and then you turn on Fox News and it's like, you know, America is under attack and we are we are at war with this and this. And it's like, okay, that's not true, but that's a much more exciting story. It lets you be the main character in this, like, war that's going on, you know? And it's, I think that that's why, yeah. So I, th- I think that that's, a, that's an instructive thing. That's a magical thought to keep in people's heads as they, as they kind of look at the madness that we're in right now. So how, I mean, all of this is more or less, you know, uh, what I tell clients how to practice, right? Mm-hmm. And this is, again, like the the bastardization of all of these things. This is the worst case scenario of how to use magic and how to use the astral and how to use, like, intention. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you believe that it's the same practices that can be used for good? Or do you think that there is a completely different set of tools and ideas to actually help people rather than hurt people i think it's i think you can use the same stuff for good i really do i do think that i mean i think it's the kind of you know you can use a hammer to build something or you can use a hammer to smash someone over the head it doesn't make the hammer bad it's but you have to use that in a constructive way or in a way that builds something good as opposed to something that builds something bad or tears something down um i think um, I think that that's what the left has been kind of missing for a number of years is a narrative that we can tell ourselves to allow us to keep fighting and, and allow us to guide ourselves in what we are fighting for. I think that that's why figures like Bernie Sanders and AOC have been kind of really speaking to people on a certain level because it's like, they can they can get up there and say not just that Trump is bad or that this policy is bad, but they can tie that to a larger narrative and they can say, well, we're not just fighting against this one law or we're not just fighting against this one person. This law or this person is one chapter in a story that began many chapters ago and we are going to turn the page and write a better chapter next, you know? And I think that that that's not a bad thing we all we we are you know to get kind of joseph campbell for a second here like we are created by stories like we are creatures of narrative and we're creatures of myth and we need that i think to to feel like what we're doing has meaning in some way and i and it does i think it does have meaning like i do politics and i do activism because i believe that 
one, that people can change and that things can get better. And two, because I think there really are things worth fighting for out there, you know? But it's it you can't fight your battles like it's just you know you you put this fire out over here and then you run over here and put this fire out and then you put this fire out because meanwhile the whole house is burning down you know you got to how did how did this happen to begin with right so yeah going way back to what you were kind of asking of like if there's a way to use this magic for good and not just evil i think that that's that's kind of what i try to articulate in the book a little bit is to say like okay The right has been very good at creating enemies and uh, crafting a narrative and drumming that narrative into people's heads and giving people the tools with which to put that worldview into place. And they've done all of this without really the consent of the majority of people in the country. Like, you know, you look at it and people over the last several decades have become more okay with abortion. They've become more okay with gay marriage. They've become more okay with trans people. They've become more okay with like all of these, you know, just queerness in general with, um, there's, there's so many ways to look at society and actually look at it going in a positive way. But then you look at where our politics are and they're, there's such a disconnect there, right? Like, you know, we have fucking Brett Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court right now. And like, I'm sorry, that's going to be, that's, that's going to create harm for the next 30 years. You know, like it's, yeah, it's you know, fucking horrible. It's, yeah. Unless, you know, he drinks himself into a coma with all that. Hey, yeah. <laughs> or, or if somebody, if the next democratic president runs unpacking the Supreme Court, which is the real, or just abolishing the Supreme Court. Let's just fucking get rid of it. What do you think about these, like, you know, I know the Catland did one that got a lot of attention. Catland is a witch store here in um, Brooklyn and in the Bushwick neighborhood. Um, They had a live stream hex of Brett Kavanaugh. Mm -hmm. Um, What do you think about, what are your thoughts on that? This is weirdly the most controversial question you've asked me, right? Like, I yeah, think it's it definitely so, is. It's so funny. I literally just said, like, we should abolish the Supreme Court and people are going to be less mad at that than whatever I say to answer this question. I'm I'm strapped in right now. <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, I think that it's fine. I, I, <laughs> that I, was so anticlimactic <laughs> of an answer. <laughs> I just, I think that it's fine. I think that if you want to hex Brett, Brett Kavanaugh and you want to live stream it, I think that's fine. I think that... Um, I I think that people like that, if you want to hex them, fucking go for it. I hope I hope it works. I wish all the best. I think one of the ways you can look at the the Catland hex in particular was that it was a moment of great uh, catharsis for a lot of people. I know from I didn't attend it myself, but I know from people who did attend it that you know there was a lot of uh, you know sexual assault survivors that were there that were able to air out a lot of grief that they had been building in their bodies you know ever since those hearings started so if you want to look at it on a purely like pragmatic perspective I think holding space for people in that way can be incredibly like powerful and empowering for people yeah I think like you know hexing is often it's kind of what you were saying earlier right that it's a lot of times it's the the only thing that a lot of people have you know they don't we we can't all go down and like shout at Brett Kavanaugh and his like Potomac home or whatever wherever he lives. But like <laughs> I, um, you know, we can't all get on a bus to Bethesda, Maryland, and like yell at him or I, I don't know some some DC suburb. And uh, so sometimes hexing is the only way that we can actually you know collect and target that grief at somebody, right? Um, so I think that that is all good. I think that, you know, you, the, the, the criticisms that I heard from within the magical community about the public hex that I, I heard a lot of this kind of going around was like, you know, witches should be, which is to work in silence. Like all your magic should be secret. You shouldn't, um, you know, you shouldn't be public about this type of stuff. I think that, there is a lot of value in keeping your magic secret. I keep personally like a lot of my personal practices secret because I do believe it adds to their power. But we also live in the age of Instagram witches where we're all doing magic at least a little bit in the public eye. So 
if Catland shouldn't do a public hex of Brett Kavanaugh, I mean, should we all just delete our Instagram accounts? Like, I'm not going to go home and delete my Instagram account, you know? But, um, or maybe we should. I mean, maybe we should have that conversation. I don't, I don't know. But, um, but also, you know, I, I think while there's value in doing magic secretly, I think the, the, uh, the other way to look at this is that, you know, I, I personally take the viewpoint that, you know, magic isn't contained to a single ritual. We're doing magic all the time. We're living magic all the time. Um, and especially when we're talking about politics, you know, that politics is completely maintained by ritual. Like the, every single facet of our political life is a ritual. And when those rituals break down, that's when that's, you know, because our belief in these things break down. That's, that is a deeply magical system. You know, you look at the the Kavanaugh hearings at all, everyone knew how those were going to end. I think everyone watching at home watched that with a lot of despair because you knew that it wasn't going to matter in the end. And you knew that this was just a formality. And the other way to say that is that it was a ritual. Like what these people were doing was they were performing a ritual in order to get the public's mind in a certain place so that when this person was eventually ritually put on this court that we believe in because we believe that it has power, that, you know, the the spell is done, the spell is cast, Brett Kavanaugh now has the power to do these things in our society. So I think that it's, you know, if you wish to keep your magic and your hexing secret, I think that's totally valid. And I think that there are valid reasons behind wanting to do that. But I think saying that magic has to be confined only to a public hex or a public blessing or a public full moon ritual or something like that is kind of, I think, missing perhaps a little bit of the the true, you know, holistic nature of magic, you know? Yeah, that's really well said. So, to... (laughs) You're you're fucking killing it. I'm very, very much of the belief that magic is all just about us choosing what is powerful or not powerful. Mm. Um, I don't think that there's any, you know, $80 crystal Mm -hmm. that is going to make somebody more magically empowered than picking up their favorite ikea cup and saying like this is the most sacred object that i have Mm -hmm. um both are sacred and it just is a matter of like what are you assigning your energy and your focus to go into you know obviously from an astrological perspective some people are more inclined to see magic in more physical terms um to use candle magic or to use food magic to use herbs or spices and then some people are more inclined to see it theoretically i'm in my own practice i'm definitely more inclined to see it theoretically and to see it as ways that people can manipulate the world for good or bad exactly yeah and i think that to your point um creating a space and creating a sacred community for people at a time when ultimately sexual assault survivors were back to being oppressed Mm -hmm. um, is very important and is also an incredible part of being able to pool our energy Mm -hmm. and to create a greater entity than a single person can offer. Mm -hmm. You know, the commodification of magic becomes gets a little bit dicey when we think about you know starbucks making their seasonal drinks (laughs) magical themes or sephora selling the witch kit but at the same time i also think that it's something that empowers people young women who this is for young girls that's probably like the least problematic thing at sephora uh, yeah, I have. So I, I do a podcast called Pop Cult, and our first episode was actually about the Sephora Witch Kit. So if you want a full, if you want my full-throated thoughts on the Witch Kit, you can go listen to that. Um, oh yes, I love a plug. Thank you. Um, yeah, we're we're taking a little break right now because I'm I'm ner- I'm 
got my book baby in my womb. But once that's birthed out, then probably we'll, we'll be back in the <laughs> studio. But yeah, I, um, yeah, I, I think the, I think to me, my problem with something like the Sephora witch kit isn't so much that like witch kits exist or that there exist places to buy and sell magical items. Cause like, I think in the witchy, occult, new age, pagan, you know, add whatever, you know, woo word you want on to that. I think, you know, we are, we are a kind of weirdly unique community in that like, we don't, we don't have like places of worship that we all go to, to form our communities around. We have stores. So like most magical communities in an area tend to form around the, the, the witchy store that exists, sort of like how, especially back in the day, a lot of like the gay community would center around like bars or around clubs or something like that. And that would be kind of a place for people to not just meet and have a good time, but like meet and share. Yeah. Like to congregate, to congregate. And like, you know, these were actually places that like, you know, you look at something like Stonewall and like, yeah, okay, that was a bar, but it was also like the flashpoint for this incredibly, uh, you know, world changing piece of history. Right. And that's because there was it was also a place of community congregation. So in the magical community, we have stores. So it's hard to talk about commodification in the witch world because that is such a bedrock of like our community, right? Um, so I don't want to say, you know, don't buy anything because I do think that those places of community are important. And I do think that people, you know, like you have a book. I have a book. I hope people buy your book. I hope people buy my book. You know, there's, there, there's, I, you know, there's, Supporting people in our community is, I think, also a good thing to keep us all going and keep us doing this work. But I think what makes me upset when I see something like the Sephora Witch Kit or something like that is, like, to me, the beauty of of witchcraft especially and the beauty of magic is that it serves to give us back a connection to the world around us. Like, we, our power in witchcraft so often comes from the connection that we form to the people and the animals and the objects and the plants that are around us. So it's kind of like what you were just saying about, you know, this cup might be, uh, you know, someone else might look at this and say like, oh, this is just a cup, but you might have this incredibly strong attachment to it because of the relationship that you have to this cup or like, I'm, I have like rocks all over my apartment. It's something I do whenever I go hiking. I always collect rocks. But like the, the I do that because like I feel like con- that connects me to that experience and that place. And I have a relationship built up with that rock. And that might sound weird or stupid to some people, but it's like I have this connection there. And I know that there's like a there's an animistic sort of quality to that in witchcraft. Right. And that's this beautiful thing that that, you know, witchcraft gives us that. I think capitalism tries to sever our ties. Like capitalism exists because of this disconnection that we have from everything around us. Like we are disconnected from our own bodies. We are disconnected from our neighbors. We're disconnected from our, you know, sometimes our friends, sometimes our our coworkers. We're disconnected from the food that we eat every day. You know, we don't know where it comes from. We don't know who grew it. We don't know the conditions under which it was grown. We don't know, uh, you know, the place, what the field you know grew up and looked like there's there we're we're disconnected from all of these things and that's because when you're disconnected it's easier to to sell you this stuff because you're you're then not just selling commodities that people need you're also selling emotions to people and i think that especially when it comes to young women i can that sometimes is so insidious right where it's like you know you walk into a place like sephora and you know, and I'm, I'm saying this as if I've never bought anything from Sephora, but like, I totally do. But you know, you, you look in and like what they're selling are feelings. Like every instinct, do you want to feel beautiful? Do you want to feel pretty? Do you want to feel sexy? Do you want to feel this way? Like buy this and you'll feel that way. And I look sometimes at the way that we do the buy, the buying and selling of things like crystals or candles or oils and things like that. And it is kind of feels sometimes like we're reproducing that a little bit. Like, do you want to feel safe? We'll buy this type of rock. Do you want to feel, uh, you know, loved? We'll buy this type of rock. And that's not to say, like, I'm not here to, to diss on crystals or say that no, everyone should just go home and throw out their crystals. I'm saying, like, I think we should we should try to make a conscious effort 
to shift how we do magic and shift how we buy and sell things in the magical community from a purely like feeling commodity based one to like a relationship one like okay if i do buy this thing or if i do sell this thing or if i do you know pick up this thing and bring it home what is my relationship to that going to look like do i know the person who made it did i um do I know the place is the place that it came from a place that's special to me? And I think that that's a really big conversation that we probably can't get into too much on just this podcast episode alone. But I think it is a conversation we need to start having of what that would look like and how we can kind of transform what we're doing in the witchy world so that we're, we are actually changing things and we're actually doing the, the deep transformative work of magic as opposed to just kind of reproducing the world we're already kind of in. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So before we wrap, Sarah, would you share with us your favorite spell? Ooh, my favorite spell. I am a huge sucker for candle magic. I really love candle magic. Um, You're also a Leo, so fire also, is very good. I'm a massage rising too, so I just like, all this fire in my charts. So yeah, I love anything that I can set on fire. But I love I love candle magic because it's very versatile and you can make it as quick and easy or as complex as you want it to be. You know, like I've done candle spells where I really like, you know, I, you know, cover it in glitter and honey and oil and, and do all the enchant and do all the stuff. And then I've also done stuff where I just like, all right, quickly put some oil on it and then like light the wick and go, you know, I, there's, I, I like that you could kind of, uh, arrange it and program it for, for whatever your circumstances kind of are. Um, and I know it's, that's such like a simple thing to say. I feel like I should be saying like, I really like the lesser banishing ritual of the pentagram or like, (laughs) you know, like I, I will Crowley, right. It's like, I should be saying some really big, uh, some really big, ornate spell but like i i think the simplest magic is sometimes the best you know and i i really have a soft spot in my heart for for candle magic and i and it's interesting to see the many different creative things that people do with it and how it's just such a simple thing can be you know taken in so many different ways by people in different cultures and different magical backgrounds and different you know, ideas of what we're doing when we're doing this. So I, I love candle magic. I'm a big proponent. Let's light it up, girl. Hell yeah. <laughs> Pass that candle. Um, so where can we find you, Sarah? I am on Instagram at City Mystic. That's where I do most of my social media these days. I was on Twitter for a time, but Twitter's a dark place, man. Like Twitter, Twitter is a bleak landscape. <laughs> so I'm a, you can follow find me on Instagram at City Mystic. Um, the book is going to be called... The, it's going to be called Revolutionary Witchcraft, A Guide to Magical Activism. And it's going to be oh, I out. I love it. Thank you. And it's going to be out from Running Press. So uh, keep, I, I have been doing a lot of Instagram stories about me swamped in research and stuff for the book. So if you want to keep up with that, please follow me there. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. This was amazing. Yay, you're amazing. Yeah.